And we'll get a pop-up notification, recording in progress, and it is being live streamed. So I'd like to welcome everybody back, Alabama Care. Today we have Mr. Daniel Spencer and Mrs. Cassie Shropshire. Shropshire. I knew I was going to mess that up. <laughs> um, ADRS Business Relations Consultants, and today we're going to be talking about disability etiquette. At this point, I'd like to hand it over. Mr. Spencer, if you would introduce yourself. Yes, my name is Daniel Spencer. I am a African-American male, bald, I have a beard, but I choose to be bald. It's not because <laughs> I choose to be bald, beard, I'm wearing a black blazer with a, a blue shirt. I work with the um, Alabama Department of Rehabilitation Services as a business relations consultant. I have five counties that I cover, uh, which are Etowah, Cherokee, DeKalb, Marshall, and St. Clair. Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being with us here uh, this afternoon. I will say I am going closer and closer to not having the decision to being bald. I have what is called a five head. Uh, so my hair just keeps going back. <laughs> and how long have you been with uh, ADRS, Mr. Spencer? Actually, on December the 3rd, it will be it will be 10 years. But I started out as a jointly funded job coach, which the position at a high school, the position was funded half by the high school and half by ADRS. So altogether almost 18 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and Mrs. Shropshire, if you would introduce yourself and please tell the audience how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. So my name is Cassie Shropshire. I am an African-American female. I have locks, which is actually in a pretty cool mohawk. Um, and I am wearing a blue, a multicolored blue top with a yellow cardigan over it. And I'm also a business relations consultant with the Alabama Department of Rehab Services covering Madison and Jackson County. And how long have you been with ADRS? I have been with ADRS for eight and a half years. Um, I started out as a vocational rehab counselor for two and a half years um, in Scottsboro and then transitioned into this role and have done it for the last six and a half. Now, for anybody that's unfamiliar with what a business relations consultant is, if you could give us just a broad overview of what that service is for individuals. I'll open that up to the floor. Yeah, well, we're still trying to figure that out. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's a lot of things. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, our goal, I, I call ourselves, we're matchmakers. You know, our goal is to, we work with individuals who own our program with disabilities and we help to create that match with the uh, with the employer to help um, meet their needs. Uh, we also provide the services such as trainings um, and and the like for the business. So it's not always about uh, just hiring, but it's about us um, looking at uh, our job is through a dual customer approach role where we look at the person with the disability is our customer as well as the business. They are our customer as well. And our job is to meet their needs. Mm. Uh, it reminds me of kind of like a headhunter in a way, helping uh, employers and employees come together and find the right fit there. Now, it's kind of a crazy time right now, but what are some trends that you guys are seeing in the job market? Uh, are there a lot of jobs out there? Um, are they kind of scarce? Is you know, Someone once told me that employees have a little bit more say right now in this market. Absolutely. Um you know, this past year alone, Alabama has added, what, 50,000 jobs 
So there are jobs available and employers need people. And so we've seen a lot of companies reaching out to us. You know, we talk about the relationship we have with our businesses, and it's very important that we're cultivating those relationships and building, helping build pipelines for them. Um, because, yeah, they're reaching out daily because they need help. Yeah. And it's not necessarily. I'm sorry, Mr. Spencer, did I cut you off there? No, you're good. Um, it's not that you're just making the connection, but you're supporting both uh, the individual and the corporations throughout the lifetime of that relationship. Absolutely. Okay. So yes, I think um, it's it's important. Um, it's not just about our needs, but for us, when we go speak to employers, we're learning about who they are, what their culture is, what the environment is like. Um, it's because we want to make sure that it's the right fit for a person. And one of the things we find is that a lot of people leave jobs because they don't feel it's not not necessarily about they're not paying me enough, but it, I just don't feel happy here. I don't feel um, like they, they are paying attention to my needs or that they value me. And so it's important that we learn what that looks like from the employer perspective, but also from uh, the job seekers perspective. Yeah, I heard something about a Twitter or an Instagram thing that when most people leave an organization, it's not because they don't believe in the vision or the business, um, but it's their direct relationship with the manager uh, that they might feel is off there and they're looking for a better relationship there. Uh, so it's very important for uh, the direct supervisor uh, and the individual to know and have a good relationship of each other and how that can serve the organization and, and really... Um, you know, our satisfaction with work, because that's a big part of life. Yes, it is. I, I think, um, you know, once once you get out there and, and you do have employment, you'll see um, that you're more up in the day, that you're proud of the work that you're doing. Uh, and it'll make a big difference in other parts of your life for your family, for individuals around you. Uh, and I think it's very important to get that work. So today we're going to, okay, I'm sorry, did I cut you off there? No, sir. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, disability etiquette, and this was a new phrase for me. Uh, if you could kind of define that for the audience. I'll, I'll tag team this one, Daniel. Um, yeah. So disability etiquette um, for me and for when we present it to people when we're training on it, it's those respectful ways of how to communicate with somebody with a disability and about people with disabilities. So not even just your direct interactions with people with disability, but how you're talking about them um, amongst other groups of individuals that are not disabled. Yeah, and when we look at communication, we also, um, even in our interactions, you know, the things that we don't say, you know, um, are very important. And sometimes they, in a lot of cases, they offend individuals with disabilities. And we we feel like, well, they just need to accept it. But we're in a time right now where it's important that what everybody's identity and who they are, how they want to be recognized, how they how they want someone to interact and communicate with them, all of that is important. And I think we should value and respect that for everyone. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of empathy is you're opening that up at the beginning of the conversation. Hey, how would you like to be approached? Um, how would you like to be? But sometimes I feel like I'm being nosy there. And I'm, I just want to generally, you know, get to know the, the individual better and how they prefer to be in communication with me. But sometimes I feel like I'm intruding or do you ever feel like that or do you ever feel like individuals feel like that? Absolutely. But, you know, one thing that we talk about often when we're doing a disability etiquette training is just simply learning that person's name. 
I want to be addressed by Cassie. Whatever disability I have is just a part of who I am, but it doesn't define who I am. So address me as Cassie and I'm going to address you as Alex. <laughs> and I think people forget that it's, it's very common sense, but sometimes we just get so in our heads about things that we forget the, the very simple way to be respectful. Mm. Yeah. And you know, Alex, I think, um, well, I, I believe for, for a long time, those biases and perceptions to, that we've had towards people with disabilities, um, the, the person that actually started our program, she would always use this example right at the end of a uh, presentation that we do called, who me, I'm not biased. She would say that a lot of times she would use the example of, hey, if you walk into Walmart and you, you have your child with you and you see someone who has a disability, maybe someone who's missing a limb, um, what's the first thing your child does? Your child a point, ooh, mom, ah, you know, and your the response from that parent is don't stop, you know. Instead of the edu- instead of that being a, a time to educate, or even to go up to that person, because I, I promise you, most people with disabilities do not mind sharing uh, their story, uh, because we work with. I'll probably say about seventy five. I think it's like 80 percent of the individuals we work with weren't born with that disability. There was a situation that uh, resulted in that, whether it was uh, medical, whether it was a car accident or uh, some type of um, situation uh, resulting in them um, having their disability that they have. And they they wouldn't mind sharing that story. And so it's that bias, that perception that, hey, no, you shouldn't ask them, don't say nothing at all. But what that does is that creates more biases uh, towards that person, uh, towards people with disabilities. Yeah. And I think it's that bias can continue on there. Like that's such a great environment for that kid to understand what maybe a lost limb is uh, and open up. But if we don't have those conversations, that bias can grow. And it's like, oh, my mom said not to go toward people that may have a disability, you know, and then that just festers. Uh, And you see some of this stuff in culture, but it's like, if we can nip this in the butt at an earlier age, like uh, we have some organizations I'll shout out to United Ability is one here in Birmingham. They have um, like a preschool environment where there are individuals with disabilities and those without. And those kids in that classroom are going to be light years forward in the empathy that they have throughout their life and what they're going to give to their kids. Um, And so I think just having that experience kind of washes away some of that bias and and more awareness there, uh, I think is really important. Now, we were talking about. you know, how you communicate, maybe even not when the individual is there and how you're communicating to other people. And I had somebody call me out on that. I have a family member. She's my aunt. Um, She's 57 years old. Her name is Bridget. And I was talking about her to another mom. And, uh, and then I, so I said, my, my aunt 50, she's 58 now. Um, She has an intellectual disability and she functions at kind of a young age. And she said, you shouldn't really just say that. You should tell me more about what Bridget likes. Um, you should tell me who she, you know, how she spends her day, what she enjoys doing. Tell me about her favorite foods. And if it comes up in conversation where I ask, you know, is there a diagnosis? Then you can talk about it. But I didn't ask any of those things. You know, just tell me about your family member. And I was really taken back because I feel like it was a little bit old style. But my grandparents, her parents, used to just say right off the bat my daughter, and they would use the R word at that time back in the day. And 
I, and then, so the family would just say that, but I had another family kind of check me and I was like, you know what? You're totally right. I should be talking about my aunt, just like I would talk about any family member or friend. And if that comes up in conversation, then we can talk about a diagnosis or more clinical stuff. I think absolutely. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Cassie. Well, and I, and that's so awesome that you were checked because a lot of times, um, we need that. We need somebody to bring that awareness to us. It's like, hey, maybe we should change how we're talking about other people. Um, but you don't know what you don't know. And if it's just all I heard all my life, that's what I assume is true. But now I have somebody confronting me saying, hey, maybe you should talk about this person in this way. And that's how we begin to change the shift of how we think about people with disabilities in general. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we haven't always, Alex, we, uh, Cassie and myself, we have not always uh, been at the place that where we at right now. I know before I even came to this agency, there are a lot of words and phrases and things that I said and used that I didn't know offended or could be offensive to someone with a disability. But in the process of being trained and being educated, as well as asking questions, because that's, we work with individuals with disabilities and asking those questions and hearing their story and learning more about them, I learned what's, what's the proper way to do it. What, what would be the way that um, they would like, that individuals with disabilities would like for us to um, address them. I so love the story you just shared, you know, because it's so important that we don't look at um, an individual, their disability, but we look at who they are. So I think that goes into the topic of uh, the people using people first language. So focusing on that person versus identif- them being identified as that person with the disability. Because nobody, honestly, let's, let's ask ourselves the real question. None of us would like to be looked at as our past. Anything that we did bad, no, none of us would want to be identified or labeled as that. Yeah, that's that cheater. Yeah, that's that stealer. You know, you don't want to be, but you want to be um, acknowledged as, hey, I'm Daniel. So, yeah. I'm not taking you guys back to college. Those stories aren't, that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> um, but I think that that you guys have mentioned that, um, you know, being involved with the organization, you've had the opportunity to learn. And I think it's an ongoing thing. And the language evolves over time. And Absolutely. even on the individual basis. So one thing that we had happen here at Alabama Cares. We have a number of anchors um, that work with Alabama Care and they come on and share their story and talk to others. And when they do that, they have control over kind of like the captions of what the video description is, those types of things. And we had one of our anchors and she received services and she wanted her caption and somebody else in the community pointed out that this wasn't the language that was appropriate. And I was like, well, you know, who am I to say to her that she can't use the language that she wants to use? When, you know, we're trying to coddle a little bit, but that's the language she wants to use. That's how she identifies. Um, And so it would be me restricting her her freedom of speech there, you know, to kind of do that. So I think it's important to do it on an individual basis and ask, you know, how would you like to communicate? What words, language uh, would you like there? Now, let's take a step into the employer realm. I feel like employment for individuals with disabilities has kind of skyrocketed in the last 10, 15 years. Um, what is kind of the mind frame that you see changing for employers around hiring individuals with disabilities? Cassie, I'll let you go. Well, um, for one, I think that we are more open to talk about 
um, not only disabilities, but accommodations. We, we've just heard a lot about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in these past couple of years. And when you talk about DEI, you have to talk about people with disabilities. And so employers realize, oh, people want a workforce that is diverse. And that means including people with disabilities. Um, and so I think that has definitely helped change that shift, but also different organizations and programs that are very vocal and advocating for people with disabilities and knowing that their support, maybe my HR team is not well versed in, you know, hiring people with disabilities, but I know there's a support system with ADRS or other disability organizations that I can reach out to. And so let me add to that. When President Obama was in office, he passed an executive order, which was Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act. And what that did was that really brought awareness because what they found was that a lot of businesses, um, they would, the federal government would send out a template of what the affirmative action plan should look like. Well, there was actually some companies that didn't even change the template when they submitted it. They, they, so they knew then that there was not a lot that wasn't a seriousness to it, that there were some employers that weren't really taking this to heart. And so what they did was they needed to put more teeth to the law. And so what they did was they passed Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, which made a hiring goal of 10 uh, percent of individuals with disabilities if the uh, business has 100 employees or less. And then if it was 100 or more employees, it was 10 percent of each job classification. And so that right there in itself, uh, the federal government, I give it to them. They really try to lead by example um, as it relates to um, the hiring of individuals with disabilities. And this was part of it. Also, there was another part of it that was passed for veterans, the Bevera uh, piece uh, of legislation as well. But the focus then was like, okay, you cannot, if you are a federal contractor or a subcontractor, you cannot, you can no longer ignore this. You have to put these, you have to make these good faith efforts in your recruiting and your hiring um, as it relates to uh, and retention of people with disabilities. Hmm. I like how you said put the teeth behind it there and making sure the incentives, the carrot and the stick are aligned. Um, yeah. And you mentioned 10%. I feel like that's kind of low. I saw a stat the other day that said individuals, percentage wise, individuals in Alabama with a disability uh, is quite high, 10% uh, being pretty low there. Um, so hopefully we'll see that go up there. And I feel like some, some of the employers maybe have been fearful in the past, thinking that it may be uh, more out of pocket for some of these um, things that they might have to do in the workspace and quality of work. And I've heard other employers say that, um, that they had that fear. And then once they hired an individual or individuals with a disability, they noticed that the productivity of that individual was surpassing their teammates. They were doing a lot better uh, than, you know, the average employee at that company. And then once those employers figured that out, they, they come right back to ADRS. Yes, during, um, during the pandemic, well, right after it, when business started to open up, we actually found out that because we talked earlier in the conversation, um, you had mentioned about individuals going to work. Yes, businesses are looking for job seekers. And what we found were that there were a lot of um, businesses that were hiring. They began to hire more people with disabilities. So the, the turnaround of the economy um, was actually the percentage, actually the percentage of individuals participating in the, in the labor force actually went up versus those who did not have a disability that went, it went down. 
So our turnaround for our economy was was being led by people with disabilities. You know that those opportunities were coming, and those individuals with disabilities were snatching it up. You know the other part too um, that you mentioned is very important too to note this that a lot of businesses they actually have there are a lot of people in their workforce they actually may have more than ten percent. The thing is that a person with a disability does not have to disclose, so that business does not know if that person has it or not, but they indeed do work in their workforce. And some businesses, they were taken back by that 10%. They actually said that that was pretty high because they couldn't ask or force anyone that were already in their workforce to tell them to disclose whether or not they had a disability. Yeah, I kind of see that a little bit now that you say it. Um, if I have to report on something, but I, I can't get the data, um, that's a little bit tricky. So that brings us to the next point of what is kind of the mind frame of the individual uh, attempting to get a job about speaking about accommodations? Um, I think it varies per individual. Um, you know, there has been a lot of people to experience discrimination because they've disclosed about their disability or had job uh, offers rescinded because they disclose. Um, so I think a lot of times it's, do I feel comfortable with this employer enough to disclose? Sometimes individuals don't need an accommodation and therefore there's no need to disclose. But again, just an individual basis on whether or not, you know, they feel comfortable enough to disclose and being able to articulate what exactly the accommodation will be. What would you say? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Now, I was going to say even that company's reputation. What are they known for or do they have a history of providing accommodation for individuals with disabilities? And one of the things and Cassie, Cassie can uh, agree with this when I say this, individual disabilities, when they work and they see that you work with them, they tell everybody in their community. They'll let them know, hey, this is the you become the employer of choice for individual with the disability who has that skill set and they're hiring for they will they will let everybody know about you. Yeah. And as an, as an employer myself, that's one of the hardest things is, um, you know, hiring, training, those types of things. And if you can really do well in the disability community, it's like somebody's out there with a microphone saying, guys, if you're great at what you do, we need to come over here. So as an employer, it's like you really want to foster those relationships. Um, we talked about uh, people first language earlier in the conversation. What exactly is people first language? Just a definition. So, so people first language is um, understanding that I am a person first and then there's my disability. And so I am a person with anxiety. I am a person with diabetes. And so that has, so when I started working here eight and a half years ago, that's kind of how I was trained to, to believe like it's person first language, but because language is very fluid and people choose to identify how they want to, we are seeing, especially in the autistic community, that this community wants to be identified as identity first. Autism is, is who I am. It's a part of me. Um, so instead of a person with autism, I'm autistic. And so again, it's being able to ask that person, how do you want to identify? And then being okay with saying, that's okay. I, I am not the person to tell you that's right or wrong. If that's how you choose to identify, like you were speaking earlier about the captions, if that's how that person chose to identify, then I have to respect that. 
Yeah, I think it's um, we want to make sure that and I think you had mentioned it earlier, Alex, that we don't use that we that we stop using or get away from using um, that outdated language. I know you didn't mention a word. So words such as crippled, retarded or even handicapped. And a lot of people, if they knew where the word handicap came from, they would um, they would actually understand why a person with a disability would not uh, want to be uh, referred to as I have a handicap or I'm handicapped. Um, if you don't mind, I don't know the history of that word. <laughs> so uh, what happened was that uh, back in the day when um, soldiers, veterans, they would come home from war. A lot of them, they didn't have uh, families, homes. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have any money at all. And so what they would do is they would assign these veterans these large hats with these brims around them. And they would ask them to stand on the corner, hence the term cap in hand handicap and so an individual with a disability don't want don't call me handicapped because it's like i'm looking for a handout it's negative it's no i'm begging I'm, i need help and that's not the case at all i did not know that story so wounded veterans would come back and people would just be like here's your hat go to the you know go to the corner and ask for money that's crazy i never knew that yes sir i think we just got our tiktok clip <laughs> 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 um, one of the other languages that I've heard discussed is uh, the phrase special education. I know it's used a lot in the school system, um, but I hear a lot of people say that it's becoming more of a word that we don't want to use. What are you guys hearing uh, in the community? I honestly... Um... When, when I seen that, I honestly hadn't had anybody say to me, let's not use it. Okay. I, I don't know why I'm starting to hear that pop up a little bit, but I, you know, it's, it's being used a lot in schools, but for some reason, I feel like when I'm speaking with individuals or families that have a son or daughter that's out of the school system, they look back negatively on that phrase. Maybe that's mm -hmm. something new that's evolving, maybe more individual. Now, I, I will say that, mm -hmm. um, and I was sharing with Cassie that I told her the same thing. I said, I haven't heard anybody, um, you know, take offense to the, the term special education. But I do know that um, in doing some research that the term special needs comes off as offensive. Okay. Um, the individuals don't like that term at all. Special needs with person with a disability um, does not want to be referred to that. Like I special needs. Um, I mean, we all have needs. <laughs> so. Uh, and that's that's the case. But special education, I, I believe I would say I don't think um, it, it will be offensive. And you're talking to so I am a person with a disability and I wouldn't be offended by uh, special education. OK, um, I you know, and there's a lot of those invisible disabilities. So, Cassie, you mentioned anxiety. I suffer with anxiety. Depression. Same. Depression, the COVID lockdowns were extremely tough. I'm an outgoing person. I like being around people. I like going to play hockey. And I couldn't do that for an extended period of time. And it wore, wore me down. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a lot there that maybe aren't, aren't to the eye. And you just have to kind of ask those questions and see how that person wants, <clears throat> wants to communicate there. All right, we're going to go for some more Instagram and TikTok clips here. So I'm going to do kind of like a rapid fire. <laughs> And this is meant for individuals, uh, you know, hopefully one of these takes off and reaches somebody that's not involved in the disability community. But this would be more of if I have a son or a daughter and there's someone in a wheelchair in Walmart, um, how would they like to be approached? So first one is, 
if an individual has a caregiver with them, such as my family member, she is somebody with her 24 hours a day. If somebody's unfamiliar with the disability community and they see my aunt and her caregiver out in the community, how should they approach that situation to get to know my aunt? Should they go to the caregiver or directly to my aunt who is nonverbal? Directly to your aunt. And then once you realize that that person is nonverbal, that's when the caregiver can step in to explain exactly why. I've noticed in conversations when people come up to my aunt and introduce themselves and acknowledge her, make her part of the, the conversation, she is much more attuned to what they're saying and what's going on. One of the big things for her is she, she has cerebral palsy, so she's had some surgeries, and it, it's tough for her to lift her head up and give good eye contact. And so I always know that she's really engaged and enjoying her time if she's making that effort to look you in the eyes and engage with you. That's kind of her saying, I'm with you here right now. That happens exponentially more if the new person in the group comes up and introduces themselves to her first. Uh, so for anybody out there that may see an individual that has a caregiver with her, always go to the individual first, introduce yourself, whatever conversation that's going to be. Uh, and then you can address the caregiver as kind of their friend or, or caregiver at that time. Now, what if someone is in a wheelchair? I kind of go back and forth on this. Do I, sometimes I feel like I need to sit in a chair myself to have a conversation. Okay, someone in a wheelchair, you wanna make sure that you're um, getting at their, uh, at their level. So you can either pull up a chair, you can stoop, um, but you don't wanna tower over them, uh, you know, because the perception of what that looks like, but you wanna get at their level so you're able to uh, communicate with them. Is it disrespectful to get on like a knee? No, it's not. If that's, if that's what's easier for you, the important thing is that you all are at the same level and you're being able to have that conversation with them. Gotcha. Um, Another one that I've been in um, situations where I have friends um, that uh, maybe don't have full use of their hands. And it is a common introduction when you meet somebody or you're seeing them again to stick out a hand for a handshake. <clears throat> what happens if my friends don't have full use of their hands um, and they're not able to give what we would consider uh, you know, a, a handshake? How, what does that introduction look like? Should I still go for the handshake? So um, I actually been asked this question um, after some trainings by individuals who um, could not give a handshake. And one of the things I will say, uh, COVID is not a bad, but there was some good to it. And so now it's more acceptable now to do the fist bump, the pound, the, the arm, the shoulder. Uh, that, that's more acceptable now. And employers, they would, they would understand. Um, it's not something that uh, they would be offended by because they would be able to visibly see that that person cannot um, extend and do the um, do a handshake. Now, I, I teach handshake in the high schools. I go throughout, you know, and I teach the importance of a handshake. But I also explain that there are some cases where an individual would not be able to give a handshake. And that's OK as well. Um, so would you recommend. Because you don't want to assume that they that a handshake is impossible kind of stick your hand out and wait for that individual to communicate with you, whether they put out a fist bump um, and you're like, okay, we're bumping fist, just like with your buddies. Like if you go like, and they're, they're coming at you like this, you know, then you switch it up last second and you go in and you're like, all right, we're doing fist bump right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think, well, I, uh, 
Yeah, so I was going to say that uh, I think now uh, I see more employers, even with greeting people, even for an interview, are either doing that, that um, because because of what happened with COVID. Um, they're more, I don't see handshakes. I'm not saying the handsh- handshakes will never go away, um, but I think just doing that or um, just being able to um, to extend it to that person. And the, the thing, the big thing, and I think Cassie had mentioned it earlier, this is just ask, you know, there's nothing wrong with just asking, you know, Hey, how, how do you prefer to be, to be greeted? Are you cool with that? You know, we do that. Uh, you yeah. tell us, you know, we'll make can it I, happen. So. Can I shake your hand? Yeah. 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 That's a great line right there to the point. Can I shake your hand? And the interviewer would say, let's do a fist bump. Cool. Got it. Um, right. That's a silver lining that I didn't think about of the COVID thing is uh, those, those greetings and the handshaking. Um, and that came about because people didn't want to spread germs, um, you know, right. And so we did a little bit different introductions at that point. Another silver lining is a lot of individuals from the community have been hired uh, because others didn't want to work the jobs. And a lot of the labor force and getting through that pandemic rested on the shoulders of individuals with disabilities. They kind of pulled weight there uh, and got us through that time. Let's talk, uh, let's switch from the individual and go over to the employer. So there are a few steps when getting hired, and I want to think about a potential hiring manager that would see this. There are a few steps, job postings, interviewing, onboard, workplace long-term. Let's talk about each one of those four and how we can introduce disability etiquette into each of those processes, starting with job postings. Absolutely. You definitely want to make sure that your job postings are accessible. So if there's somebody that is visually impaired, being able to um, read those, uh, whether it's large print or if there is an audio file on it so it can be read to them. Also, individuals that are neurodivergent, because it may be a lot of reading. Um, A lot of companies are accompanying like the videos with their job descriptions to make it more inclusive for people with disabilities. Um, So there's quite a few things you can do to make sure that your um, job postings are accessible. Um, Those those businesses, I'm sorry, Alex, those businesses who are federal contractors, I like their job descriptions because if they're a federal contractor, they are required to have on at, um, at some some place in the job description that the statement of a person must be able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. And so seeing that as a person with a disability, that lets me know, hey, they're open to hire somebody with a disability. So this, just that statement in itself can, um, can really open some doors. So using that language, really uh, somebody that has a disability reading that goes, okay, this company is willing to work with me. Um, and we can make this happen. Now, it sounds like if you're going to make a job posting, you want to do as many forms of media as possible. You want to have audio, you want to have text, you want to have video. Um, I learn a ton through YouTube. If I want to learn something, I don't necessarily go to Google. I go to YouTube because I'm a very (laughs) visual learner. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I have to see somebody do it and then I can do it whether that's making a desk or whether that's doing a hockey move. Uh, I usually trip and fall. I got bruised ribs, like I said, (laughs) but it helps me out a little bit there. Are you noticing that these hiring companies like Indeed uh, and other companies, are they offering, uh, are they kind of pushing that as well? Hey, you just uploaded this text. Do you want to create a video for that? I don't think I've seen that in some of these um, 
job posting organizations. Like that falls, yeah. That falls back on the manager to be able the hiring manager to be a little bit more creative. Yeah. That's through the personal website or maybe putting up a job. He's putting a link to a YouTube video in the text uh, that you can go and see what a day in the life would look like in that position. Absolutely. So really, so really as a hiring manager, try and get all forms of media that you can perfectly describing uh, expectations, what the job is. And then Mr. Spencer, if you could say that line again um, to put in the text. Must be able to perform the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. Yep. Perfect. Um, okay. So I see the job posting or <clears throat> as an employer, I posted the job, got all the different types of media out there. Now I'm starting to get uh, people responding and how do I want to do the interview in a way that has disability etiquette? How do I want to think about that and plan for that? I think, uh, number one, we don't want to, when we go out and we teach uh, disability etiquette, we talk about don't assume. So you want to make sure that the interview that you're doing, whether it's a, you want to think about how you're going to design the interview. You know, there's some companies where you just go right to the higher manager and you interview with the, a higher manager or you interview with the HR person, but there's others where they have panel, they have a panel group of people. And so Cassie can actually speak to this more and how to handle um, that situation, especially for those individuals who, uh, who may be uh, neurodiverse or who may be autistic, uh, those individuals where they may struggle with that type of setup. So you wanna be mindful that number one, the same interview process that we make sure that we are uh, consistent in it, but that it's accessible, you know, even if that means us, uh, because it is the business responsibility. If they, if the person needs an interpreter, that's the business responsibility, not the person coming to interview that needs the interpreter. So I think it's important that 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 access is there. That if if I'm asking for an interview, I'm I'm scheduling an interview. I'll ask that person, please let us know if you need any accommodations in the interview. Something just that simple will be able to allow that person to share and say, hey, if they need an accommodation or not. Mm -hmm. Opening up that conversation. Um, now, Cassie, was there anything that you wanted to add when it comes to like the panels? I have never been through that, but I've heard if you're going for kind of a bigger organization, especially in tech, that these interviews with these different panels can be crazy insane. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. It's, it's very stressful. I've been on a few panel um, interviews myself and somebody that has anxiety, it's, it's very stressful. Um, and so with working, especially with the neurodiverse community, um, you know, those panel interviews really are a struggle for that community. And so instead of doing a panel, maybe doing many interviews, so maybe have the person interview with one hiring manager and then maybe 10 minutes later interview with somebody else. And then as a group, you guys come together to discuss how that person interviewed with you individually, um, because we think you'll get a better response of that person because they're not um, as intimidated by the, you know, the panel, but that one-on-one -on -one interaction is a whole lot better versus that person in a panel. Yeah. I, like I said, get nervous about public speaking, but I imagine if there's five, six people in the room, I feel like I'm, you know, being grilled and giving a public speech. And I think beyond that too, is like, try to mimic it, it, throughout the process, try to mimic what a day in the life would look like. Are they going to be presenting the six people during a day-to-day -day operation or is it more one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, you know, so then do the one-on-ones and then you guys uh, go back and talk about it afterward. Um, go ahead. Yeah, Alex, we find that even some of the individuals we work with, 
they may not interview well, but that does not mean that they wouldn't be a great worker. I think it's about understanding again about um, getting that training, receiving that training um, as it relates to disability etiquette. So you know how to identify. Now you may not get it all the time. You may not catch it all of the time, but you know, for the most part, you at least able to identify, hey, that person really could not speak well, but you know, that person may have had a a speech difference, you know, a problem with communicating. And so understanding that, you know what, let's let's find an alternative way. So even with the business, with an employer, creating alternative uh, ways to interview individuals based on a disability type. Yeah. Absolutely. Why, would, why would you grade somebody on um, kind of the, how they're speaking if they're a wizard on the computer and their job is just going to be on the computer and through email? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You, yes. You're probably that- missing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, and that is something that we're truly trying to push right now is employers being more open to these alternative ways to interview. Instead of saying, how would you do something? Ask, show, to ask that person, like, can you show me how you would do this? Um, Because simply you're going to get a better response if I can show you versus trying to tell you how I would do it. Yeah. And I'm, like I said, I like to see things shown there. Um, what are the businesses' response to uh, some of this um, recommendations that you're hearing? Are they very open to it, or are they kind of pushing back, saying this is the way we've always done it? And I know you got some alarm going off in the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we uh, I think I believe it was Cassie that mentioned about DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Now they're adding the B. They're a B that stands for belonging. Uh, I think with that uh, that whole big push now. A lot of businesses are now being more open. And honestly, uh, let me be honest and say this, since we said this is an informal discussion, uh, at the end of the day, business need people working. And so for them right now, I I didn't really think about reaching out to that community. All right, let me tap into that. So they're tapping into all pools, people with disabilities. They even tapping into the individuals who are transitioning out of prison. Um, They're tapping into um, single mother. I mean, every population of people because they need workers and they are understanding now that, you know what, maybe I may have missed out on this at first, but I want to get in on it. How do I do this the right way? Yep. <clears throat> um, this power to the workers right now, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, now, so we talked about job postings and interviewing. What's the next process of that is kind of the onboarding and the training. How do I think about uh, onboarding and training when trying to be uh, disability etiquette and inclusion. What are some things I should be thinking about there? Cassie, are you coming back in with us? Or are you still beeping over there? I think she's trying to figure out where that beep is coming the, from. Okay, yeah, it's it's like a whole fire drill thing around here. Uh, Do you have so, to go outside? Is everything okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm outside, so we're we're good now. Okay. Uh, we're just oh we're God. just gonna we're just gonna roll with it. I like it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll go ahead and start it, Cassie, if you would just add on to the um, question he asked about Absolutely. onboarding and workplace. Um, so I think it's important, again, and going back to what um, Cassie actually alluded to earlier, is that making sure that part of that, that onboarding process, that materials and information that are given, even the trains, that it's accessible for everyone. Um, you have individuals who, um, such as um, such as your aunt, let's use your aunt as an example, Alex, who has CP. You know, how do we um, how do we integrate our training, the onboarding, those things that we need to do 
Um, how do we integrate that a process and play, put a play a process in place that will allow her to feel comfortable to be able to go through um, as well as, um, so you're, you're talking about even with uh, people who have a vision, vision loss, and individuals who are blind or low vision or those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You know, if you're doing training that's done on the computer, you know, is it accessible for those individuals? You know, do the, uh, the system, the software that we're using, are those accessible? And a lot of times, I'll be honest, there are a lot of businesses, their software are not, it's not accessible, but it can be but they're not accessible currently in its current format for individuals who have um, hearing loss or hard of hearing vision, uh, those who are blind and low vision. And so we have to make a conscious effort, you know, in all things to make sure that we're uh, creating an atmosphere or environment of our process is accessible for those individuals. Mm -hmm. I, uh, one thing that we really benefit from here at Alabama care is using some of these platforms like Facebook and YouTube that, you know, I have our broadcast pulled up on the screen right now. There's live captioning on here. And that is a big thing for us because some of our audience members are hard of hearing or deaf. <clears throat> and those captions are the only way that they're able to interact with the content that we're producing. But I imagine, you know, that that made leaps and bounds like in 2008 when smartphones came out. Uh, but, you know, and, and allowed a lot more of these adaptations to be readily available. Um, and when I'm thinking about my aunt, I think to make her comfortable during that process, I would really encourage the employer to allow her to use um, her own equipment. So she's got like a tech talk, um, you know, those types of things that she could bring into the job um, oh. that would help her, you know, perform better for the company. Um, Cassie, is there anything you wanted to add there specifically for kind of the onboarding and training and being accessible? Absolutely. So one thing that... Um... I've noticed, especially in the office that I work in, when someone new starts, we take that person door by door to introduce them to everybody. And, you know, you don't think about how overwhelming and anxiety stricken that can be for somebody that is neurodiverse or has severe anxiety. So, again, asking that person, well, how do you want to be introduced to the team? Is it OK if we just send an email to introduce you or do you prefer to go door to door? Um, you know, making that those kind of connections, because I don't think we ever thought about that. I think we just, hey, this is the person. Here's everybody. And you just throw them in there. But again, making sure that you're aware of what works best for them by asking, hey, how did how do you want this onboarding to look like? You know, if I am sending you to do new employee training and it's all, you know, a handbook, and you're just reading through that. Well, are you actually comprehending and understanding all of that information. So again, given the different formats and following up to make sure that they're getting the accommodations that they need so that they can be onboarded properly. Yeah. And in thinking of that, I, I don't think I'd want to go door to door and do small talk. For, <laughs> no, you know. it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, just, you know, an email out and I'll see you at the water cooler, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll grab lunch or something like that. <laughs> that you know, that sounds like dragging around. me around and talking about small talk for a couple hours. Well, you can assign mentors too. Um, that yeah. um, at times, if you're able to, if it's already been identified, someone who may um, have a similar uh, disability, um, you may be able to assign that person to that, and they they will have they will have that connection. Number one, but then number two, you know, they'll be able to talk more about that, their experiences and what 
what has helped them on the job. You know, we we've talked about even um, employee resource groups. Um, and I, I like this. I, I create this acronym TA training and application. So it's it's on the HR people who are doing the onboarding and the training. It's on them to want to be trained, to know that, you know what, I don't know this to admit, acknowledge, you know, what, I'm not I'm not versed in this. This is not a strength of mine. Let me pull in the experts to train us, our managers and HR so that we can do things the right way and then apply. Because unfortunately, we see it all of the time. It still happens with their businesses that make that mistake. Uh, they make that mistake, that error, and it gets them in trouble. Uh, most times it's a legal legal trouble and they having to uh, pay the uh, consequences for that. Uh, when all it, all it took was to understand, bring someone in, train us, and us to follow follow those steps. That's one thing I love about ADRS is you guys are always available for those trainings. I want to talk about the trainings, but before we do, I want to talk about long-term. So as an employer long-term, um, what things should I be thinking about? If you know we have a great employee who does receive services, might need some accommodations, what do I need to be thinking about so that they stay with the company for 20, 30 years? Cassie, is there anything that comes to mind for you? Sorry, the fire truck just got here. So, I <laughs> hey, give us a little bit of a show. Show us like the fire. <laughs> Listen, it is. Uh, it's 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 a it's a very weird day. Okay, um, but um, the opportunity for growth within a company, you want to make sure that you're creating those opportunities for individuals with disability, and just not assuming that you know, they're good in that position that they're in and they're going to stay in that forever. No, just like other employees in your organization, they want to be able to grow with that organization. So making sure that you're finding opportunities for them to get that professional development and you're encouraging them to go out for new new positions and promoting them within the agency so they will stay long-term. Yeah, having those discussions, letting them know that that opportunity is there and you want to support them. Now, there may be some individuals who receive services that are may need accommodations, but they're hesitant to talk about it up front. What would you say to somebody that's maybe shying away from some of these opportunities because of the tough conversation that they don't want to have? I would suggest that they're in Alabama, they can call us. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we we have a program called Ready Retain a Valued Employee, where it is an employee retention program, but it's designed to assist individuals with disabilities who may um, who may either be struggling on the job, they're not being as productive and as due to their disability, um, but the help of an, account- of an accommodation can assist them and allow them to be just as an efficient worker as anyone else um, in the uh, in the comp with the company. So calling us where we come and we we come out with our counselor, our engineer, um, as well as the BR, the business relations consultant, would be me, Cassie, or anyone else on our team, on where we we brainstorm, we work with the employer, We're not working against them, but we're working with the employer to come up to see, to evaluate how that person works, what they do, uh, so that we are able to determine, our engineer can determine what would be the recommended uh, steps as far as accommodations is concerned. I think, uh, you know, reaching out to, to those people who do the work, the experts that do this every day, 
will be the best course of action because we're not here to to judge or to say take this person's job away, um, but we're here to to really help. We and we for us with the Alabama Department of Rehabilitation Services, we are a state agency, but we're not compliance. We don't snitch. We don't tattletale. We don't do enforcement. <laughs> we don't do any of those things. But our job is to really is to be that resource for the business to assist them so that they're not finding themselves in court or any where they're being um, having to pay the consequences for. We want to we want to be there to help. Yeah, I think it's a, bit a mind shift there of I don't want this organization coming in telling me I'm doing this, this, this wrong and I'm going to get in trouble and switching it to you mean I can get free consultation on how to be more inclusive. Yes, because the business doesn't have to pay out of pocket for this, right? No, no, nothing, no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, large corporations spend tons of money on consultation, bunch of different areas. This is a free service uh, to be more inclusive with your workforce and be more inclusive uh, in the environment that the work is being done. Um, it's it seems like a no brainer. Yeah, take take the opportunity <laughs> and call ADRS now. Th- these trainings and classes. Um, so an employer can call ADRS and schedule a training and you would go to the site. Uh, but are you also holding kind of large conferences? So we actually just did, um, our large conference, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, that we usually do like once a year. Oh no, she dropped. <laughs> <laughs> She's so, been having a rough day over there. Look, so uh, what Cassie was explaining is that we just did a conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was with Disability Inn Alabama, and Disability Inn is a nation, is a, a national, worldwide organization. So, um, and the goal is to is to promote disability awareness uh, to business. So there are a lot of huge, comp- big companies that um, have a worldwide presence that are linked into um, that organization. And so the goal again was to provide education. And actually, uh, for us, uh, Cassie and myself, were both individual presenters at this conference. So we do conferences. We do, um, actually, about a week ago, I was in Gadsden, and I presented at the mental health conference, which was sponsored by the community college as well as the Gadsden Regional Hospital. And so we, uh, again, on, and actually it was on disability etiquette, and it can be on those topics. And our trainings are customized. So we don't do, it may be the same training, but what we do is we want to learn the company and um, the issue, the problems that they face or that they encounter. And that way we create that training. We incorporate that into our training. In a few weeks, we'll be doing a training with the personnel board of Jefferson County. We'll be going down there and they actually have us come in, I believe, like twice a year where they do where we do uh, all day training uh, with with their with the new employees. Uh, so they they exist. We actually have we can email out a list of those trainings. And if Alex, if you want, we can send that to you all. We have a list. It, it gives the objectives. It also lists how many people the training can accommodate because most of our trainings are actually interactive. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I do trainings, I do a little bit different than my counterparts because I bring candy. Um, I act a fool. I cut up like <laughs> we have we have a whole lot of fun. People like fun. So. Uh, we have a lot of fun, but we learn, and also it's it's an engaging time, and they and it varies. And so um, again, it's just it's a customized. We set it up customized training, um, and it on a variety of topics. Some of those topics can be newer diversity, which is one of the newer trainings. Um, Cassie actually developed a great training on it that we all have done. Uh, service animals, ADA, 
uh, training. Uh, who me? I'm not biased. That's the name of one of the training. And I think one of our more popular ones are the try on a disability, where we actually have different props and we allow people to simulate certain levels and degrees of disabilities. And after that, a person is like, oh, no, I don't ever want to be blind or I don't ever want to be in a wheelchair. Uh, they start to see how difficult they start to see it from that perspective. And it's like, wow, it really opens a lot of eyes. Yeah. Um, if you would send me over, you can just email it to me, that list of upcoming trainings. We'll put it out on like uh, the Instagram channel, uh, stuff yeah. like that, and get it out to the audience. So the employers can go to <clears throat> some of these trainings. They can call ADRS and you guys can go on site and do some trainings. But also for individuals that are looking for employment, what age would you start off with? Like, can I call it 14 if I'm looking to get my job? And if I receive services through ADRS, I'm already kind of in the in the pipeline. Can I start at 14 with the, that service? So let me let me address this first, Alex, um, because I don't want to assume that everybody knows who we are and what our program services. So the Alabama Department of Rehabilitation Services is the only one set up like it in the nation where a person can receive services. A person with a disability can receive services from birth up until need. As long as they need us, we can um, we'll provide we have the services and programs to assist them. And so the particular program that you're mentioning is our vocational rehabilitation program. But our other programs, let me just say that our first program is our early intervention program, and that service uh, children from birth to three years of age. And then we provide services and supports for them. Then our children's rehabilitation services provide services from birth to 21 years of age. We're in every school in the state. Everybody know about us. We work with the teachers, educators, caregivers, whoever's touching that child. We want to educate and help them and provide those supports in place. We also have doctors, speech, speech therapists, audiologists, you name it. We have it working with working with that child. Um, and then our vocational rehabilitation program where we service teens and adults. And we do. Uh, we serve our teens um, starting when they're in high school, uh, which will be about 14, 15 years of old, 15 years of age. And that goal, the primary goal of that program and our business relations program falls under that. Um, mm -hmm. The goal is for that person to go to work. Yeah. Um, and we work up until, again, a need. I have individuals I've worked with who are 60, 70 plus years old um, that, that had a disability and wanted to go to work. And so we help serve them. And then our last program, I'm sorry, the fourth program that we have is our SAIL program, State of Alabama Independent Living Program for more significantly disabled individuals who still want to live. So they act, live independently. So what we do is we actually go in and we teach them different independent living skills, how to cook, how to clean, how to do this, how to do that, so that they, they're not sent to an assisted living facility or a nursing home, but they can continue living at their homes independently. Mm -hmm. Cassie, was there anything um, that you'd like to add? Yeah, first of all, thank you guys for just being amazing because it has been a crazy last hour. Um, but I don't know if Daniel mentioned it when we talk, when he talked about the training, um, but we can do those training virtually too. And so we've had a lot of employers who say, hey, we got a big group. We want to be able to train them. Can you adapt the trainings to do them virtually? And because of COVID, we were on it. And um, that's something that we offer now. Yeah. Um, I, I never heard of Zoom until like 2020. Now yeah. everybody knows it. <laughs> it's the easiest way. Everybody's familiar with it. It's right on your phone. You can log on anytime. Um, uh, so you can get services, both the employer and individuals. Now we're going to kind of close out here. Before we do, I'm going to put you both on the spot. Is there a success story 
uh, that really sticks out to you of an individual coming to you or an employer coming to you and that working out very well? Cassie, it seems like you have one on the top of your mind there. <laughs> Absolutely. It's my favorite story to tell. So a couple of years ago, I got a referral for an individual. He is autistic and nonverbal. And so we had done some assessments and the assessment said, oh, he cannot work. It's just not a good option for him. Um, but I didn't believe that and neither did mom. And so we did a few things. We have what we call a paid work experience, um, which is very much like an internship where a person goes in and they they train with the business at the end of the inter the paid work experience. The business can choose to hire or they can say, oh, you know, we don't have, you know, a position open right now or this person just wasn't. Um, a good fit for the position, but either way, it's still a, a very great program. So we ended up doing a paid work experience with this individual with a small manufacturing company, and they just loved him. And the company, the, the HR, she was all about training her staff about autism and finding ways how to communicate with him and making sure that employees knew um, the do's and don'ts of interacting with him. And so everybody just got on board. And so he has been employed with that employer now for two, three years, and uh, it's just going well. And, and I just, I get so excited every time I talk about it because, you know, so many people are told that they can't work and nobody gives them the, the opportunity to, but um, being able to do that with so many people is, it's just, it's a great thing. And I've, I'm just blessed to have had those experiences. That's a life-changing thing for that individual totally life-changing for them to be able to go to work, you know, produce, um, and have that feeling, uh, you know, that, that at the end of the day, you're part of a team. And I've heard from employers and hiring managers, HR, that the, the company and the business goes from kind of a business mindset to a family mindset, uh, when they hire individuals with disabilities. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Spencer, is there a story that, uh, kind of sticks out for you? I think um, there are there are a couple of them. I, I'll use um, a recent uh, story of a, a lady who's who's of short stature, and so she had gotten hired on to do uh, media with the radio. And for her, uh, she she was doing football games. Well, the um, the desk where the the communication the uh, that the equipment was at was very high. And so what we did was so she she actually initially when she first started. She would um, have a chair, but she she brought her own step stool and would climb up. But she found out that it still wasn't high enough. And so she she would have to maneuver and figure out a way to get to that level where she could work. Um, but what uh, what we did was we contacted our engineer and our engineer came in and um, we she assessed. She looked at, evaluated her job duties. And what we did was we ended up finding this chair that would actually um, lift up to where she wouldn't have to climb, do any climbing or anything like that. And so she's, she's enjoying her job. The business is enjoying it, giving her more responsibility now. And um, she, she's loving it. I, I had, a, we had a chance to be um, with some of the engineers through ADRS and the things that they can create are magical. And now they have a 3d printer, um, <laughs> but really they can create, um, you know, physical uh, yes. solutions to, to environments that you would have never thought about. I never thought about it. I was like, wow, that's a crazy solution. That's awesome. Um, and so just that experience of having that chair where, you know, you're taking away maybe some fall risk using a stool, climbing up on some equipment that has a lot of wires. 
<clears throat> and giving her, just as anybody else would want, as a chair while, you, while you're working there. Very cool success stories. As we close out, um, Mr. Spencer, I'll, I'll ask you first, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think an individual or parent's family could benefit from hearing uh, about employment? I want everybody to know, everybody that's listening, I think it's important that we understand that when, we, when we're working with individuals with disabilities, uh, for us, with our state agency, we're trying to uncover what their abilities are. Now, I think researchers say that individuals with disabilities are the best judges of what they are able to do. That's true to a certain extent. But when you're dealing with an individual who, um, and I'll real brief example, a, a person that uh, dealt with a sinus problem, but it led to blindness just like that in less than a year's time, and they can no longer see again. So now they don't know what they're able to do, what they can and can't do. And so for us to be able to provide, to uncover what their abilities are and to be able to still connect them to their purpose. I'm a purpose person. I, I think, you know, walking in your purpose, being able to do what you're passionate about and love to do is an amazing thing. And once, especially once you know what, what it is. And so being able to have that, see that aha moment, you know, when it, when we're presenting opportunities and that fit what fit with what that individual who come to us, what they want to do, not us putting them at fast food, just, just because fast food hiring, but us connecting them to what they love to do and what their, with their abilities is, it's an amazing thing. So our goal is to, is to do that. I love what I do. If you can't tell already, <laughs> you know, uh, I love what I do. Uh, we love what we do and what we can give because Honestly, I believe Alabama is we're number one as it relates to providing these services. And so I don't think I think it's a match. Nobody can touch us. Um, and I'm not actually I'm not being biased. It's they a lot of states look to us uh, because of um, the model and the example that we set. So please do not hesitate to call us if, if there anything that we can anything that we can do, any services that we can provide, any questions that you may have. Um, when you when you speak like that, it makes me think of like a life coach who's not going to let me get get away with like a little bit of my own BS and is going to push me a little bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, no, I'm, I'm that one. I promise you, I'm that one. I, <laughs> I, I used to when I worked at the high Talladega High School, I call them out. I used to have IEP meetings with parents, with students in our special education program. And we had there were parents that did not want their child to work because they didn't want to lose the check. And so I, I was the one that would, would tell them, I would say, hey, what happens if you die? You know, what happens when you leave this earth? What your child wouldn't be able, they won't know how to do anything because we never gave them the opportunity. But then too, to that student, I would say, hey, my job is to piss you off. <laughs> it's to piss you off into your destiny. And if that makes you mad and upset, but you end up doing what you walking in your purpose, hey, I did my job, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I can live with that. Sometimes we have those self-limiting beliefs that we walk around with that we don't always see, and they can come a lot from our upbringing from our parents. Uh, no, I don't want you to go on that playground because you might get hurt. Yes. Um, but you gotta, you gotta kind of find that road yourself. And for parents, I would, you know, encourage you step away when your kid is doing something dangerous. Allow them to do it. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, Cassie, uh, closing statements here. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think individuals, parents, or families could benefit from hearing? Um, so the one thing I would like to say as it relates to disability etiquette, um, giving yourself grace. So, you know, when we do our trainings, the thing that we talk about is 
learning and being okay with making the mistakes, but learning from it. And so as you engage with people with disabilities and you learn the language, if you mess up, if you say the wrong thing, if you accidentally offend somebody else, give yourself grace and just try to do better next time. We are all human and people with disabilities just want to be treated like everybody else. So just remember that and keep that in mind. Yeah, I feel like sometimes that fear of saying the wrong thing can hold people back from having genuine conversations and relationships. Um, so be willing to fail. Fail fast. Do it a bunch of times. So you, you'll figure it out. <laughs> well, I'd like to say thank you both for being with us here this afternoon and spreading uh, the word about everything that the business relations consultants do at ADRS and uh, teaching us about um, disability etiquette. And so uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, at this point, we'll go ahead and end our broadcast. Um, and we're going to do that by giving all of our cameras a wave. And we will say we don't have any more this week. So we will see you guys next week. <laughs> Thanks all again, right. guys.